Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography Podcast. Today, my guest is Amanda Blackwood. She is an author, a public speaker, podcast host, an artist, a survivor of human trafficking, and an advocate. Welcome, Amanda. I am so happy to have you here. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. Thank you so much for taking and making the time to be here with me today to share a little bit about your story and your journey and the beautiful light you put out into the world through all of the amazing work that you're doing. I appreciate you. Thank you. With that being said, let us jump in. Now, I know you have quite the story and journey, and of course, we'll jump right into that now. And as a result of your experience, would you mind sharing a little bit about your story and your journey? Let's just get right into it. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up in an extremely abusive household. This is very common for people who've been through what it is that I've been through. I started out with some of my earliest memories. I remember me being molested when I was about four. My father was physically abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. My brother was my molester. Oh, He was only seven. So Seven. Clearly something was happening with him. He wouldn't have had this knowledge otherwise. No. So I don't know what happened to him. I don't know who did what. I've never been able to figure it out. He doesn't remember, at least he claims he doesn't remember any of our childhood before he was 19 years old, which is a common trauma response for boys. Okay. So it wasn't his fault. And I've come to terms with that now. But I grew up in this household of constantly being abused by everybody around me. And I had all this built up anxiety and animosity. And I was molested repeatedly throughout my preteen and teen years by other people as well. There was an uncle by marriage. There was a stranger to swimming pool. There was another stranger in a video rental store parking lot. It was constantly bombarding me. Yeah. By the time I was 17, I was raped by somebody that I thought was my best friend. Oh my gosh. And I had started running away when I was only 15 years old. I did everything that I could trying to support myself. But eventually I finally, I kept on getting dragged back by the cops. And I was in a foster home for a little while when I turned 17 and had all this lack of emotional security. I felt like I wasn't loved. I wasn't worthy of love and I needed to find it somewhere else. So when I was 18, I ended up dating a man who was more than twice my age. Can you say daddy issues? (laughs) 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 I was Amanda. I was 18. He was, I think, 38 at the time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
So there were a lot of issues in my life. And this man decided that since I had demonstrated to him that I had this intense loyalty for him, he was giving me affection and a roof over my head, which is at that time, the two most important things that I needed, that he could do whatever he wanted with me and I would continue to be there with him. So he loaned me out as a kind of a birthday favor for his best friend's birthday party in Las Vegas, Nevada. He gave his best friend my identification so that I could get on the airplane from Arizona to Vegas. And this man kept hold of my identity the entire time. The way it was presented to me was that I would get an all expenses paid trip to Las Vegas. I'd been to Vegas before and I'd ridden the roller coaster at the top of New York and I loved the roller coaster, wanted to go back. And instead, when we got there, the front desk was paid extra money to not ask questions about who I was, to make sure that I didn't have a hotel room key. If I was going to get room service, I was allowed to get room service once a day. And it was only going to be with them bringing the food service cart to the door, knocking on the door and leaving immediately. They were not to stick around and ask any questions at all. Holy shit. So I was locked up in this room for 52 hours. It would be this constant cycle of he would go downstairs and gamble and drink and get very inebriated. Then he would come upstairs and rape me or assault me in some way. And then he would eat a couple of bites of whatever it was that I'd had. And then he would pass out and go to sleep for a few hours and wake up and do it again. It was in this hotel room for 52 hours. Holy shit. Now, if I'd have left... He had my ID. I had no way of proving who I was. My birth certificate and social security card and all my personal documents were still back in Arizona where it was that I was living at the time. I didn't have anything of my own. I had no money. I had no friends out there in Las Vegas. And when I left home on the way to the airport, my father gave me a ride and he told me, your mother and I were talking last night. She said that she gives you six months before you come crawling back to us. I said, I give you three. So I didn't even have them really to be able to call to say, hey, I'm in trouble. I didn't feel like I had anybody in my life. I couldn't go to the police. I had no way of proving what it was that I was accusing people of. And every time that I had run away because of abuse as a kid, I kept on getting dragged back home anyway. So this guy had my ID. And as far as I could tell, he could easily lie to the police and tell them, yeah, she's my daughter. See, I have her ID card. It would be exactly the same thing in my head all over again. So I started at that point with the very dangerous phrase that we should stop telling ourselves, I've been through worse, I can get through this too. Holy shit. So after the 52 hours ended, I was taken back to where I was living at the time and Mm. supposedly life was going to continue as it always had, but I wasn't willing to wait around for this to happen a second time. So I grabbed what I could carry and I left and I went and found somebody else's couch to sleep on. I had moved around at that point so often in the state of Arizona, it was getting pretty ridiculous. I was basically homeless. My name had not been on a lease anywhere. I did not get mail anywhere. As far as anybody was concerned, I had dropped off the face of the planet and I kept on doing this over and over. Eventually, I made my way out to Florida. So that first incident happened in 1998. Eventually, I made my way out to Florida in 1999. By then, I had injured my knee working on a horse farm and I needed to have some surgery done. My plan was to go and stay with my dad's mother, 
there in Florida. When I got the knee surgery done, I would recuperate at her house. I already had a follow-up job and a home lined up afterward. And I saw where I was starting to get my life on track. And I got all the way down to the Daytona Beach bus station. And I called my grandmother's house to have them come and pick me up at the bus station. It was about 1030 at night. And I told them, hey, I'm here. I'm finally ready. Let's do this. Can you come and get me at the bus station? And my grandmother's husband, my dad's stepfather, answered the phone and said, we're not coming to get you. You're on your own. Good luck. What the fuck? Right. I didn't know it at the time, but my highly manipulative mother had called them and said, she's running away from her problems again. And if you take her in, we'll never speak to you again. Oh, my God. So 1030 at night, here I am sitting on a curb and Daytona Beach bus station, pretty rough part of town, bawling my eyes out. And nowhere to go. Right. I had no friends. This was a strange state. I had $5 in my pocket. I didn't even have a bank account. That was all I had was what I had with me right that moment. Holy shit. And a young couple got off of another bus. They had just traveled back to Florida from visiting family of their own in New York. And they came and they found me sitting there on the curb crying. And this young couple, he was 22. She looked 18. Turned out she was 15. Oh my gosh. They found me sitting there crying and they tried to get my story out of me. And I don't know how they understood me through the sobs, but they did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they told me, we've got a place. Come and stay with us. I know you don't know us, but it's going to be okay. We can give you a place to stay until you get on your feet. What they really meant was, we'll give you a place to stay until we find the highest bidder. Holy fuck. Were there any, when they were speaking with you, and of course you're in a very emotional state, were there any alarm bells that were going at all when these people just approached you? It's just, okay, these people are nice and they're offering me help. So yes, I'm going to take it. Right. At that point, everybody in my life had been manipulative and abusive. I didn't know how to pick up on the warning signs because to me, this was perfectly normal behavior. So it was all I had ever known. So when they sold me, I was locked up in a small room for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities. The guy that had me, I believe he said his name was Esteban. And I remember him laughing at me when he locked me in the room and saying, go ahead and scream. Nobody can hear you. And leaving. shit. And I remember hearing other voices down this hall, other people that were trapped and wanting out. Back in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, there was this fantastic show on TV called Mm. MacGyver. Yes. (laughs) I remember MacGyver. (laughs) Man could fix anything with a paperclip and a rubber band, right? Yeah. yeah. He was my hero. I loved (laughs) MacGyver. I was in love with Richard Dean Anderson as a kid. (laughs) It wasn't a problem he couldn't fix. And as far as I'm aware, there's never a time in any episode ever where that man was abusive to anybody. He was my hero. That was what I wanted in my life. But I had watched it so religiously that in that moment when I'm locked in this small room, I thought very clearly to myself, what would MacGyver do? (laughs) Wow. And I've written to Richard Dean Anderson, and I told him the story very briefly. And he's never replied, but I have to understand that he does know. Yeah. Yes. And I will mention it as often as I possibly can Absolutely. when I'm talking in interviews, because yeah. maybe somebody will pass it on to him. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> we have to put it out to the universe. Absolutely. <laughs> I love I gotta that. Gotta keep trying. Gotta keep trying. The man saved my life. I MacGyvered my way out of that room. Seriously? I totally did. What did you use? <laughs> Whatever was at hand. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to go into too many details because yeah. I did write about it in the book. Okay. Um, okay. 
which we'll Detailed, talk about. That book was a lot of fun to write when I got to this part of problem solving. But <laughs> leading up to it was a little bit of a weird heart racing mess. Yeah. <laughs> But I did manage to get out of that room. When I got out, he was hot on my heels. And the first person that I saw that flagged down was a female police officer. And I ran up to her in her car and I started trying to tell her about what had happened, who I was, what's going on. It's broad daylight. I'm barefoot. My eyes are just burning because I've been locked in this room in the darkness for so long. And she didn't believe me. Holy fuck. I was in one of the worst parts of Daytona Beach at the time. It was well known for prostitution, which in hindsight, this is a major problem that a lot of people didn't want to address. And in certain crime circles, like true crime podcasts and stuff, these people are known as the less alive. The reason they're seen this way is because they're breaking laws, supposedly, and they don't have much of a life anyway. So they're not treated as though they have the same value of life as somebody like a high school student or a soccer mom. Jesus so Christ. she was looking at me as though I were one of the less alive. Basically, at that point, I kind of was less alive, but not in the same way. No, of course. And nobody deserves to be treated that way. No. But while she was staring at me like I had sprouted a third or fourth head, this guy had been chasing after me in his car because he knew I was on foot. And she saw him do an illegal U-turn in the street. And when she saw that, she went after him. And left you just standing there. Left me standing there. After what you had explained to her. Right. That she didn't believe. She fucking takes off for a traffic violation. For a traffic violation. Of the man who was chasing you. Right. Holy fuck. And I'm sure she probably figured this is just some domestic violence issue and this is a private matter, but now I can write him a ticket for that. And I left. I did not wait around to see if she came back for me. I didn't look to see if they went back for the other people that were in that place. And I lived with this massive amount of survivor's guilt for a long time for not going back and checking on those other people. I was no hero. I did not go back for them myself. I didn't send somebody else to go back for them. I didn't follow up with the police, the news, nothing. I ran away and I hid. And I hid for years. Eventually, I made my way out to California because that's about as far from Florida as you can get while still (laughs) not having a passport. (laughs) I finally got my driver's license. I really started to try to find myself. And my plan in LA was I was going to be an assistant for somebody important because that's the only way that I could ever have importance in my own life. One of the coping skills that I developed, one of the trauma reactions is being a people pleaser. I'm also very hyper vigilant. So I can kind of predict what it is that somebody is going to need or want before they even realize it. Fans of the old TV show MASH will recognize this same trait in Radar. He was great. (laughs) My favorite character. (laughs) Loving the TV references, Amanda. (laughs) So especially TV references from the 70s and 80s, right? Yes, yeah. I'm starting to date myself here. <laughs> <laughs> so I get out to LA and rather than become somebody else's assistant, I ended up acting. I was on Alias and Will and Grace. I modeled for Harley Davidson, a couple blue jeans and cosmetics commercials and advertisements and stuff. I did a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. But I was still trying to find that acceptance and that love. And I had read somewhere where Rita Hayworth once said, they go to bed with Gilda and they wake up with me. And I started to realize that this is what my life was becoming also. They were going to bed or getting into a relationship with what they saw on the outside. 
And once they got to know who was on the inside, oh, that's too much for me. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. So I was still very lonely, still looking for constant love and acceptance and relationships wherever I could. And it was around 2004 when internet dating really started to blow up, really started becoming a big thing. And I met this man online and he lived a long ways away. So we decided pretty early on, we're not going to have an actual relationship because you've got a life over there. I've got a life over here, but we can get together and chat and hang out and get to know each other and have these great conversations. We started doing Skype where he Mm -hmm. would have, I don't remember if it was breakfast or dinner, but I would have the opposite meal and we would sit and eat together while we were on these video chats. And we had a lot of fun doing this and getting to know each other. I watched his little girl grow up in pictures. And over a period of seven years, I really did establish myself. I finally got my first car without somebody having to co-sign. I got my first apartment where I had no roommates. My name was the only name on the lease. Finally got your lease. I finally got my lease. I felt like I was making a home for myself. I'd never known what it was like to have a home, so I was finally making it for myself. And I got a job working as a mall cop. And within five months, I had busted open a major embezzlement ring. Holy shit. (laughs) Like something from a movie. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) And they promoted me from being the new man on the job to suddenly being the director of public safety and security. And before I left there, I was the public safety director for six different properties in LA County. And my boss was a regional director. Holy shit. I worked hard. I established myself. I never went to college. I never got that knee surgery, by the way. Mm. And I was really making it in the world. Moving on up. Right. Wheezy and and George. (laughs) (laughs) And this was all as somebody who was considered a failure in the family. My brother was a certified genius. I was the dunce. I was expected to fail at everything, and I was really making my way. During this time, were you in contact with your family at all during all of this? A little bit. The last time I saw them was in 2009. I had been in a relationship for a few years with a really great guy, a highway patrol officer. And when that relationship crumbled and ended, I decided to move back to go and stay with my parents for a little while to try to establish some kind of a relationship with them. Okay. I recognized at that point that if all of my relationships were struggling and all circling a drain, basically, that I needed to go back to the root cause of the problem. And I needed to work on that. So I had this goal in mind. I was going to go back and try to work on this relationship with my family. I had already done some really great things with my life. I was director of sales for North and South America for a battery production company right before that. And when I went back to go and stay with my family, because that job had ended and my relationship had ended, I had nothing keeping me there, basically. So I went back to stay with my family. And my mother was convinced that the only thing that I was really prepared to do and capable of doing was being a waitress. Holy shit. I felt so oppressed yet all over again. I felt like they were treating me like they did the day I left when I was a 15-year-old runaway. Nothing in their eyes had changed. I was 29 years old and nothing in their eyes had changed. And had accomplished so much. Right. But they didn't see it Turned your life around. Right. But they didn't see it that way. They saw me still as being the family failure and the black sheep. And I needed to prove myself to them. I needed to demonstrate that I was willing to do what they wanted me to do. And I had very strict rules. At 29 years old, I had a curfew of, I think, 10 p.m. unless I was working. At 29? At 29. And so what is it that they wanted you to do though, Amanda? I don't- They wanted me to work as a waitress and get myself on my feet and get my own place and stay right there in the same state as them. And 
wasn't going to happen. So through some really weird, random encounter at a Starbucks, (laughs) (laughs) some of the best stories happen this way, by the way, (laughs) I ran into a guy that I knew when I was a little kid. And this guy had grown up and joined the military. We had... We'd both been living in LA. Neither one of us knew it. We ran into each other in the <laughs> Starbucks in Ogden, Utah, well, Riverdale, Utah, of all places, which is a very small suburb way right. out away from everything. And he's, well, what are you doing out here? And we had this conversation. He's, well, I need a roommate. Come move back to LA and come be with me. And I said, yes, get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm there. <laughs> I went back to LA and I helped this man to rekindle his romance with his soon-to-be ex-wife. They stopped their divorce proceedings and they got back together. And then she decided I was a threat and threw me out. <laughs> oh my God. So again, here Amanda is, nowhere to go. Yeah. Holy shit. So that was when I got the job as mall security and worked my way up. Right. Within five months of leaving that man's place, I had my own apartment again and was reestablishing myself and doing really well. And that's when this man that I had known since 2004, he came to visit me and I went over to go, go visit him and we really established an actual relationship. And he asked me to get a fiance visa to move to Scotland to go and be with him. Holy it was shit. the land of kings and castles and what little girl who grows up watching Disney movies doesn't dream of this exact thing. Exactly. So my plan was to sell the car, give up my apartment and quit my job and move to Scotland to go be with this man because this was my happily ever after that I had been waiting my whole life for. I was 31 years old. So I'd known him for seven years. It took him seven years to get me there. It took him seven days to start trafficking me. Holy fuck. Seven days. It's amazing how much your life can change in the blink of an eye. Jesus Christ. So basically, he picked you up from the airport, took you to where he was living, and within a week, it started. Right. And that first week, it was fabulous. I could go where I wanted as long as he took me. I could visit with who I wanted to as long as it was his family. And I could explore as long as he was with me. Holy shit. I didn't realize at the time how controlling this was. I saw it as this man is watching out for my best interest because I'm a stranger here and he wants to make sure that I'm safe and I'm okay. Was it a similar thing to you had mentioned with the first occurrence that he took your ID? Within two hours of me landing, he had my passport, my driver's license, my debit card. And he said that it was all for safekeeping. And I trusted him because he was a police officer. Holy fuck. And you had built a relationship of over seven years. So why would you think anything other? Right. Exactly. I absolutely trusted this man, obviously, with my life or I wouldn't have gone in the first place. Exactly. And he is a police officer. Yeah. And I had mentioned that I had previously been in a relationship with a really great guy that was a highway patrol officer. He was fantastic. Things didn't work out with us and I wish him all the best, but I'd already had this really amazing relationship with a police officer. Yeah, I fully expected that's what this would be also. Of course. He was going to be patient and kind and loving and gentle and thoughtful and he was none of those things. So the abuse when it happened started right away. I got there on January 11th, 2011. While I was there and while all this abuse is happening, I knew pretty quickly, just like the first instance, that I needed to get out of here. 
he had all of my documentation, so I couldn't do it right away. And eventually one night during the abuse, I fell back on my waitressing skills. And I remembered the importance of making sure that people never see the bottom of their coffee cup. So I did the same with his whiskey cup. I got him very drunk that (laughs) night. (laughs) There you go. Towards the end of the night, I told him, hey, if you give me back these things, my passport, my driver's license, my debit card, then tomorrow I can go down to the bank and pull out all of my money and give it to you so that we can spend it. Because otherwise, it's just going to sit there in the bank in the US forever and do nothing. So why don't I go and collect that and then we can spend it? He thought that was a great idea in his very inebriated state. (laughs) So he gave me back my documentation and I hid it and prayed that he wouldn't remember that he had given it back to me. And the next morning, rather than going to the bank, I jumped on a computer and I started looking up flights. Get me out of here. The very first flight out would have cost $12,000 to go from Scotland to California. There was no way I could afford that. I had a little over $2,000 in my bank. So I had to expand the search out day by day, hour by hour to see when is the first ticket out that I can afford. The first ticket out that I could afford was going to be five days after that day. And when I purchased the flight, I had a total of $11 left to my name. And that's what I was going to be restarting my life with was $11 but I didn't care. I can stay with a friend. I've couch surfed most of my teen years. Anyway, I've got this. I can do this. Just get me out. But I also had that very dangerous same phrasing in my mind circulating around just like the first time. I've been through worse. I can get through this too. And I nearly didn't. The abuse got so bad that I ended up with a kidney infection so severe that I was in the hospital when that flight took off and it was a non-refundable flight. Fuck's sakes. So I lost everything except for the $11 and he found out about the ticket. And that was when the sport torture began. So I was waterboarded just to see what would happen. Holy shit. Sleep deprivation of, I believe, eight and a half days. But at that point you get really loopy and you start hallucinating. So I could be off by a day or so. Uh, There was food deprivation. So I was basically starved. He said that he could make more money if I stayed thinner. So he started this really dangerous cycle of food with me. Right. All of this stuff is happening. I was withering away and losing hope and felt like I had lost who I was. I had only just started to figure out who I was. So one day I was a smoker at the time. I decided that I was going to take my one last cigarette and leave the house. And I got out and I walked down to this old church. It had been built in the 1600s and there was a headstone in the graveyard that everything but the date 1776 had been weather-worn off. And for those who don't know, 1776 is the American independence from England. So I took that as a sign. I'm an American. I'm looking for independence from this guy in the UK. (laughs) And I sat down next to this headstone and was talking to this headstone for about an hour having a conversation with somebody that I didn't even know whose name I could never discover. That was my best friend. That was my only friend that day. I kept on saying and and praying to myself, please send somebody to see me. Send somebody to find me and ask me what's wrong. Just send somebody just to see me. And nobody saw me. Well, maybe I'm sitting down too low. I'm sitting down here in the graveyard. Nobody can see me. So I got up and moved to the church and I tried the doors. There's nobody inside. The door's locked. And I sat down on the steps. And again, I said, out loud this time, please send somebody to see me. People were walking down the street and glancing at me, but they weren't really seeing me. And I could tell from the look on their face that they could tell I was upset, but they kept on thinking to themselves, not my problem. And that's kind of the the mindset that we have these days is that's not my problem. I don't want to get involved. 
and people were driving by, people were walking by, and nobody could see me, really see me. And eventually, after about an hour of sitting there on the steps, I got up and wandered to the train station. My plan at the train was I was going to sit down and smoke my one last cigarette and then get up and walk parallel to the tracks until I could hear the train coming. And when I heard the train coming, I was going to commit suicide by train. So I was smoking my cigarette there at the train tracks, getting everything cleared up in my head, reconciling all of these thoughts, making a firm plan of action. Man walked out on a platform and he had a cigarette also and he asked me for a light. So I handed him my light. And he thanked me for it. And I told him, as I was handing it to him, you can keep these. I won't need them anymore. And I said it very purposefully. And the reason I did this was because, not because I wanted him to understand that I'm a foreigner because I had the accent, but because I wanted him to ask me why. And he didn't ask. And I knew I couldn't make this total stranger care. He was going to be another one who was thinking to himself, it's not my problem. I'm not going to get involved. involved. He handed them back to me after he got done lighting his cigarette. And he said, I won't need them either. And that was it. That was the whole conversation. Holy shit. And I sat down and I went back to smoking my cigarette. And a little guy, probably about four years old, walked out and took this man's hand. And as he was holding on to his daddy's hand, he looked at me. And he looked at me with eyes that did not belong to a four-year-old child. He saw me and it scared the daylights out of me because when he saw me, he looked at me like he knew me and I didn't even know myself anymore. And that's a scary moment when somebody looks at you like they know you and you know that they know you, they know your pain. And I knew in that moment that I could not do to this four-year-old what had been done to me when I was a four-year-old. I could not take away his innocence. I could not commit suicide by train. I could not have this train pull into that station like that. And I got up and I started running back to my prison, back to this man's house. And it took me a little while to realize that I was running back there instead of toward the train. And I got back and on the way, written in my head a poem. And in the poem, I had started this breadcrumb trail of, I know how I can do this. I know how to get out. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Got all the way back and I decided, this is it. This is my last effort. This is all I've got left in me. And I started working over the next two months on convincing this man that I was madly in love with him. I would do anything for him. And Stockholm Syndrome what we now call trauma bonding, had completely taken hold of me. In June, I sat down with him and told him my fiance visa was supposed to be the six-month visa for us to get married. We didn't get married. So if I overstay my visa, I could get kicked out of the UK forever, according to UK law, and never allowed back. You could lose your job as a police officer. And we (laughs) wouldn't want that to happen, would we? But if you send me back to California, I can find friends to stay with and I can stay there for six months and then I can come back and I can come back in time for Christmas if we do this quickly enough. He bought me within the next two hours, a round trip flight. Holy shit. I left there on June 19th, 2011. I had been there for 152 days. Landed back in LA and did my best to disappear. And he so right back to me. where you started again. Right. Nothing no ID, not like just disappear. Well, I had to have my ID to be able yeah, to get on the plane. Of course. But yeah, I had no job, had no home, <sighs> no apartment lease, no car. I what had the fuck nothing. did you do when you got back? Like, I got a job working for a friend of mine. And then this man sent photos and videos of me being raped to this friend of mine and said, I wouldn't want this in my life. Would you? 
and it severed the friendship severely. Holy shit. So I lost that job and I got another job and he sent all this stuff to that job, which was a corporate job. I lost that job. I kept on getting fired from these jobs over and over again. Then he put all this stuff up on a photo sharing website and started sending people to my social media pages. So I started shutting down social media pages. I really went into hiding as best I could. I finally found one job working for a man that I had known for several years. And I told him ahead of time, look, this is what's happened to me. This man allowed people to rape me and molest me. And he took photos and videos and he is sending this to people. Do not pay any attention to it if you get an email from this person. Don't open the photos. Don't watch the videos. Ignore it all. And that is exactly what this man did. And I finally found a safe place to work. He had an animal rescue vehicle that they allowed me to drive and it stunk like wet dog, but I had a vehicle to drive. (laughs) 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 He gave me a job where I wasn't making great money, but I was making money. He gave me the opportunity for overtime so that I might eventually start being able to pay rent and not have to share a room with somebody. And I eventually got a room and I started really finding myself again. But that didn't stop this other man from hunting me still. He came over to find me. And I remember looking through the peephole of my shared living experience, looking out and seeing him banging on the neighbor's door because he had my address off by one number. Holy shit. And those neighbors didn't know me. I was pretty new there. So they didn't know how to tell him where I was. Thank fuck. Yeah. And I moved pretty quickly after that. Another abusive situation, of course, because this was a cycle in my life. And it happened over and over again. I've moved 43 times at this point in my life. Holy shit. 43 times, Amanda. Yeah. Trying to get away from these people. Not realizing that these are the people that I was constantly attracted to because this was what I had known my whole life. I had to break this cycle. I did everything I could. Finally, I packed up a U-Haul. And I left the state of California. I had been living there on and off for 14 years. I was done with California and California sure as hell was done with me. (laughs) (laughs) So I moved to Colorado and I got out here and I got another job as a mall cop. And that's what I knew. That's what I was good at. But even then things weren't going well. And I knew that he had something to do with it. And I couldn't figure out quite what it was. It was something following me. I really got established in another corporate job was doing really well. I'd been there for two and a half years at that point when I found out that he couldn't figure out where I was working. So instead of writing directly to bosses, he made me famous on a pornography website. Holy shit. And he linked all of my social media that he could find. He linked any personal information that he could find, including my social security number, my first and last name, my email addresses, my home address for anything that he'd been able to find All of this stuff was listed with these pornography videos. And I was asked for my autograph in a grocery store. Not for being on Will and Grace, not for being on Alias or Extreme Makeover or any of the really cool things that I had done over the years, but for a rape video. I knew at that point that if people were going to keep finding me, they needed to understand why. But I needed help to be able to get there. So I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization that paired me up with a therapist. Traumatized the poor woman so much, I'm pretty sure she left the practice forever. So they paired me up with a second therapist. And I went into the therapy session already knowing what I needed. And I told her right off the bat, number one, do not come at me with prescription medication right off the bat. I don't want a Band-Aid. I want a shovel. And number two, don't treat me like I am some fragile, breakable porcelain doll. Because if I was going to break, I'd have done it already. 
and let's get Absolutely. busy. You had reached that point where it's okay. And uh, I, the cycle, it ends, it stops right fucking here. That's right. it. I'd hit rock bottom. I thought I had hit rock bottom at that train station, but realizing that the whole world now has access to see what had been done to me, that was the real rock bottom because there was so much shame and guilt and stigma surrounding all of this. And I knew that if I didn't move beyond those basic emotions, I was never going to be able to move beyond what had happened in my past and never be able to have any kind of a real relationship at all with friends, with family, with anybody. I had to move beyond the shame and the guilt. What happened to me was not my fault. I have nothing to be ashamed of. It took me a year and a half to get there through this intensive therapy. But at the end of the therapy, the therapist asked me, she said, well, I don't think there's much more that I can do to help you. You've done so well. What are you going to do next? This was November of 2020. I told her, I said, I think I'm ready to finally write my book. She (laughs) said, well, you've already written a couple. Yeah. Yeah, but not that book. I'm ready to write the book. And she says, well, that's good. I'll check in with you in January. If you need me, you know how to reach me, but we'll get through the Christmas season first. So we go all the way through the Christmas season. She reaches out to me in January and she says, so how's it going? I said, I'm doing great. How are you doing? She said, that's not what I asked. (laughs) (laughs) How's it going? How's the book going? I tell her, oh, it's done. From November to January. I was working two full-time jobs at that time also because my roommate had lost his job. So I was the only breadwinner for a two-bedroom apartment and I was busting my butt trying to get work done. So she asked me, she says, is this a short book? No, it's 350 pages. And she asked me, how did you write 350 pages while working two full-time jobs? And I told her, how do you not write 350 pages when you're finally ready? When it's ready to come out of you and you don't hold it back because you're afraid of editing, it all comes just pouring out of you. It just poured out of you. Holy fuck. How cathartic was that for you, that process of writing? Like, How did that feel during the process? Were there times where you had to kind of step away because it was too much or it just kept coming and coming? And then it's like this whole sigh of fucking relief. It's, It's all out of me now. It was all of that. And it was this bizarre feeling of, I have short chapters in this book and they're short for a reason because I had to walk away. But every time I got this section done, every single time I told a story, this story now had a physical body that was separate from mine and I could set it down and walk away from it. It was intensely relieving to just walk away. It was like taking a teacup and filling it up with toxic poison and setting it down on the counter and saying, this isn't a part of me anymore. It's like spinning on a sidewalk. (laughs) Yeah. Getting it out. Just getting it out. Just get it out and walk away from it. And it's okay. It's not this not going to be a part of your life anymore because it absolutely will. Trauma changes who we are. It alters our brains. It is a brain injury trauma. It is always going to be there, but that doesn't mean that you can't set it down on a separate shelf. And it doesn't define you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is the book called? Tell us, share, so that people can check it out. That one, my full autobiography is called Custom Justice. I'm really proud of it. And the so you should be. The cover is one half of my face. My hair is all curly and I'm wearing authentic 1940s jewelry and a dress and just all these antiques. And it's a heavily photoshopped image. And the reason for that is because I wanted people to understand the significance here. What we portray 
And what we show to the world on the outside isn't what's important. It's what is between the covers. What's on the inside of that book is who I really am not what you see on the outside. That's fucking powerful. I love that, Amanda. I will definitely put the link for people to purchase the book in the show notes when your episode's released. There's so many directions we could go here. First of all, I have to say thank you so very much for your vulnerability and for sharing your experiences. I appreciate you allowing me into that space to be part of that. I am honored that you shared that with me. So thank you for that, first of all, first and foremost. Thank you for allowing voices to be heard. It's important. We have to shine a light on this. This is a horrific thing, horrific crime that so many people are affected by. Not just women, there's boys too, and so many people. And if we can start having the conversation, you and I talked about this before we jumped on, that's part of the way that we're going to shine a light on this is through conversations, through having people like yourself, through having survivors share their stories for others to hear so that they know that they're not alone and that they can talk about it and that there are places for them to get help. It's so important. As you said, we were talking about before we jumped on about, I said, it's like pushing a boulder uphill. I said to you, how do we start to work through this and shine a light on it and start to make a dent in this. And what did you say to me? We need more people pushing that same boulder. Yes, exactly. So reducing the demand of trafficking is a critical aspect of combating this crime. In your opinion, what steps should individuals, communities, and governments take to address the root causes and create sustainable change in the fight against this horrific crime? There's so many places to start. One of them is by understanding what human trafficking actually is. We see it in TV, we see it in the movies, we see it on the news, and it is not what it is portrayed as in the media. As you and I talked about with The Sound of Freedom. Right, exactly. There's very little reality there at all. It's like watching reality TV. That's how much reality is. But but this movie is being touted as this incredible piece of work that is shining a light on this horrific thing that's going on in our world. Well, we also have to recognize that Tim Ballard was a Navy SEAL and did not earn enough money to purchase his $6.5 million mansion in San Diego with what the government was paying. We also have to recognize that he has since left Operation Underground Railroad. We don't know what circumstances there are in that split. We also have to recognize that Operation Underground Railroad has repeatedly posted on their social medias since then that this movie does not portray any kind of reality. Wow. They are openly speaking out now. We also have to recognize that this film was owned by Disney for a little while first. (laughs) (laughs) And we have to recognize that the movie is not about human trafficking. The movie is about Tim Ballard making his voice be heard over the voices of the survivors of trafficking. Going down a deep rabbit hole here. This goes very, that is fucking insane. We got to do our research on these organizations. We got to do our research on who it is that's running them and where that money's going before we start really wanting to just dive in headfirst and praising them for everything that they've done. Well, you and I talked about this briefly last time we spoke about the fact that if this guy, if this movie is all about advocacy for this cause, why in the fuck are there no profits going to any organizations that are advocating for the survivors of this horrific crime? Right. This movie has done so well, apparently. 
it's made millions. So why? How many lives are changed by it? Tim Ballard's. (laughs) He can afford a bigger house now. Unbelievable. Okay, let's spin this back to because <laughs> we could go on and on about that. Let's spin this back to how we can start, how people can start getting to the root cause and, and starting to make change. A big thing is by recognizing the laws. Okay. So the penalty for purchasing sex, for hiring a prostitute, for paying to rape somebody, as was being done to me, that penalty is just about the exact same as driving over the limit line at a red light. It's 80 to $120, depending on what state you're living in, which is why the Epstein names have never been released. We won't go too far down that rabbit hole. But <laughs> if those names were released, you'd have a bunch of vigilantes out there trying to enact their justice because these guys are getting 80 to $120 fines. Period. That's it. And that's only for instances they can prove. So the burden of proof is upon the prosecution, of course. So you've got these issues here. But you also have to recognize what human trafficking actually is. You can't Google the definition. You can't look it up on Wikipedia. These are fallible services that have faulty descriptions. You have to look at somewhere like the Department of Homeland Security. They define human trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or commercial sex acts from another person. There's no mention of transportation. We immediately think human trafficking equals transportation because that's what we see traffic as when it's not. The act of transporting a person across a state, across a border of some kind is human smuggling, not human trafficking. It's the same thing with, you notice it says commercial sex acts. It does not say money. There's no mention of money. So giving somebody as a trade off like what happened to me the first time, was still trafficking, even though money didn't exchange hands. There's also no mention of age. We think human trafficking only happens to little kids being snatched up by total weirdos in windowless vans, right? Yeah, the white panel vans, yes. Right. 85% of people being trafficked are trafficked by people they know and trust and love and have an established relationship with already. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, boyfriends, girlfriends, people in their lives that they already know and trust. What instances Uh, of kidnapping are rare? Yes, I spoke with someone recently, same thing. But 1% of cases, she said, are kidnappings. They're very low. Now, I'm curious, what is... If, I don't know if you know this, but I'm just very curious as to what is the percentage of boys trafficked versus girls or males versus females? It's hard to get the numbers for those that are over the age of 18 because okay. they don't keep track of right. a lot of those statistics. Adults, yeah. But when it comes to anybody under the age of 18, which is one quarter of all victims worldwide, we're looking at a 60-40 split, 60% girls- 40% boys. And this is an astronomically high number of boys being trafficked when people don't believe it happens to boys at all. Fuck. Unbelievable. So we're turning a blind eye to 40% of all victims of human trafficking just because we think they only purchase sex from girls. That's not the case. It's not the case. Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of grooming that happens pretty early for some of these kids too. Some of that can be as simple as exposing these kids to pornography. And that happens a lot in kids' video games and all kinds of different platforms like Discord and Flickr, photo sharing websites. All this stuff happens. My photos and videos have shown up on all of these, I guarantee. Oh my God. By the time they are in middle school, barely starting middle school, nine out of 10 boys... And six out of 10 girls have already viewed 
hardcore pornography. That's horrific. They're being exposed to this and they're being made to believe that this is normal and healthy. Unbelievable. So this is another way that we really need to get involved. It's important to have this open dialogue of conversation with kids to make sure that you know what's going on in your kid's life. And a really great way of doing that is setting aside some time every single day to spend with your child, whether you're going outside and throwing a ball around or you're playing video games with them or teaching them how to play an old fashioned board game. Sitting <laughs> there we down, go. <laughs> right. Doing things with your kid. They're going to start to recognize recognize that they have this space with you, that you want to be involved in their life, that you're not going to be a distant parent setting the kid in front of a TV or a smart device and saying, okay, have fun. I'll be a parent when you need me. Yeah. There's your babysitter, right? Right. You need to actually spend time with your kids to be able to have that conversational dialogue with them. So the porn industry is a huge problem here. Prostitution is a huge problem here. These things, instead of making the prostitutes out to be the bad people here, why the fuck are we not going after the Johns? This is insane. Well, the Johns are the guys that are just getting the 80 to $120 fine. Until these laws change, that is not going to change. But it's not even the Johns that are necessarily the worst of the worst. It's definitely the traffickers. These are the people that are manipulating and forcing people to do things against their will. They use a force fraud or coercion. And this is a major problem. But another thing that people don't really recognize is that 85% of all modern pornography is created using victims of human trafficking, just like me. Fuck. So how do we start to change the laws? What do we have to do? And this responsibility is not solely with the survivors. This is with all of us. We need to all step in and do our part here because this affects everybody. Right. You can't be that person that walks past the church and sees somebody crying on the steps and say, it's not my problem because you know what? It is your problem. Because because your kid could be part of that one day. Heaven forbid. And if it's not happening to your kid, it's happening to one of your kid's friends. Yeah, someone you know. And you don't even know it. Whenever I do public speaking, I love to sit down in the audience, mark a chair out pretty early and sit down actually among the people and have all the chairs around me fill in. (laughs) When they call me up on stage and say that we've got a survivor of human trafficking is going to be getting up to speak, I stand up in the middle of the audience. I can feel the people around me. I can feel them go, oh my gosh, I was sitting next to a survivor and I never knew it. Another thing that I love to do when I'm up there is to remind people that I'm not alone. There's somebody else out in the audience that's also a survivor of trafficking. Every single time I say that, somebody comes up to me and afterwards and says, I didn't know that what I went through was called trafficking. Wow. This is the way to get involved is to recognize that it's right next to you. It is a part of your life, whether you like it or not. And it's not going to change unless you put your hands on that boulder and you start pushing it up the hill too. Help that person beside you push that boulder. That's what we need to do. And it's platforms like podcasts, books. Let's give a bigger voice to the survivors. Right. To share their stories. Yeah. And we need to start looking at these laws more. We need to start rewording them and petitioning government to change these laws. We need to have harsher punishments for the traffickers. We need to go after them more. There's such a small percentage of traffickers that are actually being prosecuted and an even smaller percentage of those that actually face the music for the crimes that they've done. So it needs to start with the laws. We have to start there. 
Right. And it, I mean, it, it almost seems an insurmountable challenge because it's just become so fucking huge. And I mean, you and again, you and I spoke about this before we got on here. There's, I think there's different groups of people who, like you just said about not even knowing that it's going on. It's in your neighborhood. Let's start there. It does go on. It goes on everywhere. Your neighborhood or your city you live in is not exempt from that, right? right? So it's, again, it goes back to raising the awareness. So there's those people. Then there's the people who just have their heads in the sand and don't want to know because if they do see and realize, oh, wait a minute, this is going on, that shatters their entire fucking belief system and their world. Yeah. Recently, they arrested a man under suspicion of the Gilgo Beach murders. Okay. His wife has recently come out and started talking about how she'd been married to him for over 20 years. And she never knew that she was married to a serial killer. You never know who that person is, to be perfectly honest. And it can be really scary. But if you have any kind of suspicion at all that the person that you know that is your next door neighbor or your husband, and you think that there might be a possibility that they're involved with something, you have to do your part. And you have to recognize also that we're not expecting you to change the whole world because that would be impossible for one person. We are not all Steve Jobs or Martin Luther King, but you can change the whole world for one person. A four-year-old changed my entire life by not saying a single word, but by seeing me. And if you can have that same impact on another human being, wouldn't you want to know that you've at least tried? A chance encounter with a four-year-old. And that changed the trajectory of your entire life. Yeah. How fucking powerful is that? Yeah. Many survivors face numerous systemic and legal barriers in their path to justice and rebuilding their lives. Yeah. What systemic changes do you believe are necessary to support survivors in accessing resources, obtaining justice, and of course, reintegrating back into society successfully? Reintegrating looks different for every single person. This is something that I have learned can have drastic differences for other people. I've known a survivor who never knew what her real name was. Holy shit. She had to completely establish one for herself. She had to pick her own name. She had to pick her own birth date because she didn't know when her birthday was. This reintegration is so completely different. One of the things that we desperately need is more legal firms that are willing to work with survivors of trafficking. Pro bono legal services usually work through an organization called Alight that pairs survivors with these legal services. They paired me with a law firm in New York City that was working very hard and diligently on taking down all these uh, different pornography pages with these photos and videos of me. We need a lot more of that. So if there's legal organizations that want to get involved, this is a really great way of doing it. If you know somebody that might be interested in it, hey, this is a tax write-off. Use it. Do some good in the world. This is a really great way of getting people to understand that there are legal services out there that they can trust to be able to start to reestablish themselves. We've got some anti-trafficking organizations that the survivors can also pair with that help them and walk them through this whole process. But not knowing what those resources are is the same thing as not having resources. We live in the age of the internet in 1998, 1999, when the first two instances happened for me, this was not something 
that was talked about. Internet was not all that common. And in 2011, when I was 31 years old and got out for the last time, human trafficking was not something that was talked about. These are all things that are buzzwords these days. So there's a lot more information about it that is available. Look it up and find it. And if you're not sure what resources are available, reach out to the National Human Trafficking Hotline and they can find out for you. What about survivors groups, like Facebook groups and things like that? I mean, social media is another huge platform. It's scary because it's a double-edged sword. It is. You have to be really careful with the, specifically with the Facebook groups, because you can get occasionally somebody in a Facebook group who pretends to be somebody that they're not, and they're actually trying to prey on former victims because they're going to be easier to suck back into that world. The average number of times of re-victimization for a survivor of human trafficking is seven times. I was trafficked three times. So you have to be careful with that. You have to make sure that you're vetting the groups and the organizations that you're getting involved in. There's usually survivor groups that are survivor led in just about every state in the US. If you get connected to one of them, you're going to have an astronomically different experience. Another thing and you have your to watch network will expand for that too, because right. they will all, all obviously know of other places for refuge and, and help. Absolutely. And another thing you have to be careful for with online groups is that you might have different stages of recovery in this group. Right. And one person can go in there and do what I like to call trauma vomiting, where they yeah. basically take the worst of their stories and they throw it out as though it's a trophy. And this can be incredibly traumatizing for other victims. For right. one thing, they start to compare their stories and their trauma trophies. Right. And my story doesn't compare to yours. So maybe my story isn't as valid as yours. And we don't want that at all. We don't want to reach traumatize people just for being in the same room as one another, because your lived experience does not mean that you have to wear it as a badge of honor. It is not who you are. It is what you went through. You can move beyond this, but you have to make sure that you're doing it in a healthy and controlled environment. For the first and no, bit. no one's story is less important than another's. Right. Every story is individual, but it doesn't take away from the value of it right. or the importance of that person's story. And I have people try to tell me all the time, well, I went through some trauma. It's nowhere near what yours was. And I have to stop them every time. When we go through trauma, it creates new neurosynapses in our brain and it changes who we are. It changes how we react to things. It creates a brain injury that is not really reversible. My trauma and your trauma are not to be compared on any level because it changed who you are, period. You are now a different person and you have to grieve for the person that you were going to be because that person no longer exists. Therefore, your trauma is every bit as bad as mine. Thank you for clarifying that. That is a very important point to demonstrate. Absolutely. Through your advocacy work, Amanda, you've become a voice for survivors, raised awareness around this issue. What advice would you give to individuals who want to become allies in the fight against sex trafficking and support survivors in meaningful ways? Recognize what human trafficking is. Spread the word about what human trafficking is. And whether you're willing to tell your story or not, you don't have to do what I'm doing to be an advocate or to learn how to fight back against what has happened to you. 
You can do this in so many different ways. If you really want to get involved, reach out to some local anti-trafficking organizations in the area. And if you're hesitant to offer them money, because I know I certainly am, one of the greatest things that you can start with is offering them your time. Ask them, what do you physically need? Do you need toothbrushes? Do you need toothpaste? Do you need socks, clothes, shoes? What do you need? Because if they don't need the physical items, they probably don't need your money either. Makes sense. Do you think part of the fight to prevent sex trafficking, our society needs to address the underlying issues? We've already talked about pornography and and prostitution, but the issues that make individuals vulnerable to exploitation. Like, What do you think needs to be done to address poverty, homelessness, these types of things? These would be part of that, I would think, as well. They definitely can be. But one of the big things that we need to recognize is that here in the U.S., the majority of trafficking that happens in upper middle class families. As you said, it's usually a lot of people you know, right? Right. So it doesn't have to be within families of poverty. In fact, I have recognized now with what it is that I'm doing that families who live in poverty here in the U.S. especially are more likely to have that open communication with their kids because they can't afford smartphones. They're on a limited budget. They're spending more time together. They have limited space to be able to have any kind of privacy. The trafficking happens less in poverty-stricken homes than it does in upper middle class. Fucking crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, you were going to say something there. My apologies. I didn't mean to (laughs) cut you off. But yeah, there's a lot of things that do need to be addressed. One of the big ones is having abusive households for children is definitely going to leave them more vulnerable to this kind of a relationship later on. But again, how do we, I mean, that's something that outsiders can't come back. We don't know what goes on in these homes unless you witness it. So that's a very hard thing to address and get involved in because you don't know. Right. To a degree. Yeah. We also still have that same mentality of walking past the church steps and saying, it's not my problem. If you see a problem, it needs to be addressed. And again, you can't change the whole world, but you can change the whole world for one person. If something had been done about my household back when I first started having wild temper tantrums, shortly after I was molested and started telling outlandish lies and started having massive personality shifts. If something had been done because the signs were there, things in my life might have been different. And this is so true of so many kids everywhere. They're in these households where they're constantly facing a bombardment of abuse in some way, if not multiple ways. And the longer they stay in these environments, the longer they stay in a household where daddy hits mommy, the longer they think that this is normal and this is what they're going to seek out because this is what they're familiar with. They learn early. I learned early that those people who say they love you are going to hurt you. And if they don't hurt you, that means they don't love you and they need to stop that cycle. Well, also, I mean, when the kids start acting out, the parents' first thing is, let's take them to the doctor. And what does the doctor do? Meds. Here you go. Let's get these kids on medication because that'll fix everything. Yeah. I learned a few months ago now that the majority of kids in the 1980s that were diagnosed with ADHD had been sexually or physically abused and they were treating the symptoms. And this was the case with my household also. When I was four, after I had been molested, I started going through this personality shift as a kid that was acting out because there was something wrong. My brother was also acting out. So my mother took both of us into the doctor. Remember I said my brother was seven. 
Yep. Something had happened to him. I don't yep. know what it was. She took us into the doctors and the doctor said, your son has ADHD, so we're going to give him some Ritalin. But your daughter, we think she's still pretty normal. She's just acting out a little bit. I had just, just started. Head. So my mother didn't believe them. So she started breaking my brother's Ritalin in half and giving me a half dose illegally. Oh, playing doctor. When I was four. <laughs> So about a year later, she took me off of the Ritalin for a couple of days. This is how manipulative my mother was. She was manipulating the doctors and the outcome of these tests. She took me off of the Ritalin for a couple of days and took me back into the doctor to have me retest it. And of course, as a five-year-old now going through a drug withdrawal, I was pinging off the walls and they said, yep, she's got it too. And they gave me my very own prescription and I stayed on it until I was 15 and started running away from home and didn't take it with me. So yeah, this is absolutely what people do when your kids are acting out and they're getting diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. It might not be these things. It could be that your kid has gone through something and they're acting out because they don't know how to tell you any other way that there's something wrong. You're this treating goes the so symptoms deep. Holy fuck! This is crazy. Yeah. There's yeah, and so we're just scratching the surface. Exactly. There's so many different pieces coming in here that are symptoms of all of it. Right. This is the stuff that we need to be watching for. We ask, how can we get involved? How can we spot the signs? These are the signs. Yeah. We've had them in front of us all along, and we've been made to believe that these are normal things and just a personality disorder that you can treat with medication. It's not. Okay. This is a symptom. This is a sign of something bad going on. For others who may be currently experiencing sexual exploitation or trafficking or things like that, what message of hope or encouragement do you have or would you like to share? We have grown up constantly hearing the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it's a lie. It is absolutely a lie. Frederick Nietzsche coined this phrase in the 1800s, shortly before he died in an insane asylum. It's okay to let this one go. The truth is our abusers and our past and our pains do not deserve the credit for making us stronger. We've always had that strength within us. We've got it in us right now. We need to stop reaching for the band-aids and start reaching for the shovels. We've got to dig deeper. We've got to get to the root of the problem. We've got to find that strength. We've got it in us. Find the resources that are available to you. And asking for help is not a weakness. It is a strength. Be strong enough to ask for the help that you need and get it right away. Wow. Now we've talked about your book. Let's talk about your podcast because you also have a podcast. Please. I know you have two podcasts actually. So why don't you talk a little, three, three podcasts. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the podcasts? So my primary podcast is called The Survivors by Amanda Blackwood where I interview other authors who have written about overcoming their own traumas. So I talk to these people so they can talk a little bit about what it is that they've had to experience, how they overcame it, what writing meant to them and who they are today. And this is so I can hopefully provide help and support and hope to the people out there who are going through stuff right now and think that they are completely alone in the world and nobody else has ever experienced anything similar. There are so many stories of survival and hope and it's a beautiful thing. Now, is this, sorry to interrupt, Amanda, is this focused on trafficking survivors or is it just trauma survivors in general? Trauma survivors in general. Okay. I wanted at one point to have this focus on nothing but human trafficking, but I realized that there were so many other voices out there, not just trafficking survivors, who needed to have their voices heard. They were having the same struggle that I was having 
when I first started doing all this. Yeah. They weren't being heard. Nobody was listening to them. And people need to hear these stories every bit as much. Absolutely. Okay. Sorry. Continue on. My apologies. No, you're good. So the second podcast is called Growth from Darkness. And I co-host this with a dear friend of mine from Australia. So we get together and have a new episode every two weeks. We are syndicated on radio in Australia. So that's pretty exciting yeah, for us. Yeah. Um, but we talk about the different trauma reactions, what the long-term consequences are of not dealing with them, and then how to fight back against them to retrain our brains so that we can start having healthier relationships with less trauma reactions. Beautiful. The third podcast is kind <laughs> of a sleeper. It's usually five-minute episodes, and it's all about different phobias. I started this one because I had a couple of my own phobias that I was trying to learn something about. What is this phobia? What is this called? Where does it come from? How do I fight back against this? Like I do trauma reactions. And I learned that there are literally thousands of phobias. So it's like <laughs> yeah, anybody could do a podcast on this. Yeah. Why not me? <laughs> so, <laughs> so that one's just called that's a phobia <laughs> all right now you also you work with organizations who fight against traffic can you speak a little bit about maybe about the organizations you work with and the work you do through that as well so one of them is up here in Denver, Colorado called Beautiful Feet Wellness. This is a survivor-led organization. She's also a public speaker and she's been on many stages. She's fantastic. I just recently, through my own publishing company, helped her to publish her very first Yay! book. She just got it in the mail yesterday. Awesome. So really proud of her. Her name is Jenny Footle. She is just a fantastic person. She's a yoga instructor and she takes different survivors on retreats and stuff. She's so amazing. Beautiful. And then there's Alight. Now, Alight is the organization that paired me up with the legal services. I would do anything for these people. They are incredible. They do anything they can to help survivors. These organizations put everything, every penny back into the work that they're doing. It doesn't line their pockets. They're not buying $6 million mansions. <laughs> like they some are, people. Right? <laughs> They are living modest means and doing what they can to get by while trying their best to make a difference in just one more person's life. And then one more after that and one more after that. And it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Amanda. What would you say, Amanda, is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before you learned it? And what was your life like after learning it? I am worthy of love. This was a hard lesson for me. This was tough. I spent the first 38, 39 years of my life feeling like I was broken. I was a thing to be used. Nothing in my life was ever going to get better. And when I finally figured out my name literally means in Greek, worthy of love. <laughs> when I finally figured this out, it was through the process of writing my book and learning that the things that happened to me don't define me. The things that happened to me are not my fault. And the month after my autobiography was published, which was June 19th of 2021, in July is when I met my husband. <laughs> Incredible. I love it. That is beautiful. Who in your life, Amanda, has had the biggest impact on you and why? I don't want to get too religious, so I'm just going to say God, <laughs> first and foremost. <laughs> but other than that, I would say in person, my husband, in form of like, movies and actresses and actors and all that stuff. Barbara Stanwyck, 
<laughs> so my husband first, he's incredibly patient and kind and loving and resourceful. He did a lot of hard work himself before we ever got into the relationship. He had been married for a number of years and went through a very traumatic divorce, I was accused of being a terrible person. And he went through the hard work to try and figure out if any of that was true, fixed what it was that needed to be fixed before ever wanting to enter another relationship. That was huge. That now, Barbara, is huge. Yeah. Barbara Stanwyck. She was born Ruby Catherine Stevens. She lost her parents at a very young age. She grew up very impoverished for a long time. She fought back against the circumstances and everything that was stacked up against her to become this incredibly giving, caring person who wanted nothing more than to show the people around her that she loved them deeply and dearly. And I aspire to be more like her every day. Love it. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? The gift of creativity. I did not know that I had it in me to express myself in so many creative ways. So after I wrote my book is when I started painting. Hmm. January of 2021. I actually have a solo art exhibit going on here in Denver right yeah. now that started cool. yesterday. Started yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you. But having the ability to express myself in ways that people find tangible helps them to connect with me as a person more. And that makes me far more successful than I would be that if I was just rattling off just random phrases wherever I went, because people aren't going to want to listen to some total whack job. <laughs> I love making you laugh. <laughs> oh, you're hilarious. How do you define the word success? What does that word mean to you? To me, it means being happy with what you're doing. It doesn't have to be money or status or the big house or the fancy car. If you are happy being a gardener, putting your hands in the soil and working every day to grow beautiful roses, that is success. You have found your joy. You have found your happiness. You have found your purpose in life. What does the word empowerment mean to you, Amanda? Understanding that you're capable of far more than what you originally thought. Empowerment isn't about wanting to step into a specific role or having a title. It's kind of like success. If you find what you're happiest doing, if you find that you have a passion for it, you are empowering yourself to do these things. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be one, two, three, forward answer type thing, okay? Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Tenacious. What is your favorite self-care practice? A long, hot bath. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Love yourself. What is one thing you want but cannot buy with money? A long life. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would that be? Making a difference. And that concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What is something surprising that you've learned about yourself in the last year? That is such a tough question. I think I've had a lot of health issues this year. And I think one of the things that I'm starting to recognize about myself is that I'm a lot stronger than I thought, but I'm also a lot more frail than I thought. And I have to take care of myself physically, not just mentally. What is your why? Oh gosh, I have so many of those. Was <laughs> <laughs> one of the biggest ones you have. I'm expecting a grandbaby soon. Yay. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I want the world to be a different place for my grandbaby. If you could step into my shoes, what question would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask you? If you could go back to when you were three, four years old, what would you tell yourself? There you go. What would you tell yourself? It's going to be hard. You're going to face some challenges, 
You're going to want to cry, but you're also going to want to laugh and you're going to get through it all. And your survival story is going to be somebody else's message of hope. And it is. And you have, look at you. You are resilient, strong, courageous, all of these things, Amanda. You should be very proud of yourself and where you've come from and what you've managed to do, how you've pulled yourself out and up to where you are. There's days it felt impossible. I'm sure it did. I have no (laughs) doubt, but you're here and you're talking about it and you're helping others who are going through or have been where you were. That's powerful. I hope so. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? Barbara Stanwyck. I knew it. I knew that was coming. (laughs) So she passed away a number of years ago now, but oh my gosh, what an incredible person she was. I'd love to ask her questions about her life and what she was feeling during certain things because anybody can write a biography on the woman. Only she can tell you the true story. (laughs) Lastly, Amanda, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your tribe, your corner of the world, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? Life is never going to be what it is that we want it to be. It's always going to be a challenge, but that's what makes life worth living. We have these set of circumstances set out in front of us and we can either bend and break because of them or we can bend and grow in spite of them. You can choose to do the easy things your whole life and have a hard life, or you can choose to do the hard things your whole life and have an easy life. You have to choose which hard you're going to take. That is your path to choose. Nobody can do it for you, but I hope you choose wisely. Beautiful. Amanda, once again, thank you so much, first of all, for allowing me into this space to share in your journey and your story. It is incredibly powerful. Like I said, you are incredibly resilient and inspirational and courageous. I appreciate the time that you took to invite me into this space to be with you, to share in that. I am so very honored. So thank you for that and for sharing, of course, with the audience who's listening, your story, your insights, your wisdom. It will definitely help somebody. So thank you for that. I appreciate you. And I am just so grateful to be connected to you and to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. And thank you for taking the time to be here and share your story and your journey. Thank you so much, Brad. And thank you for all of your hard work and what you're doing to make so many voices be heard. It is my pleasure and my honor. Like you said, when you find that thing, that's success. And this is it for me. This is my purpose. So I'm honored. I'm honored with every conversation I get to have. So thank you very much for allowing me again into your space. I appreciate you. Thank you. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Amanda Blackwood. She is an author, a public speaker, a podcast host, an artist, a survivor of trafficking, and an advocate. Thank you so much, Amanda. I appreciate you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.